Thank you for joining the Home Church Podcast. For more information about Home Church, visit us at myhomechurch.org. We love you, Lord. We set our hearts and minds, soul and strength on you this morning. We're asking Holy Spirit for wisdom and revelation to rest on us. That this word would truly become bread. That we would meet with the living word. We're asking now, Holy Spirit, that you would till hearts tenderize hearts, open minds, open ears, that your word would be planted deep and it would bear much fruit. We ask God that you would bless, bless your word. I thank you that it will not return void. So we bless what it's accomplishing. We say thank you now, God, for what it's accomplishing in our lives. We thank you that it's changing it's transforming, it's redirecting, it's confirming, it's building up. We ask for the fullness of your word, all that it does. We ask that it would be released and meet each and every single person here, Lord. We seal that in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. guys <laughs> thank you Lord so good to be with you guys this morning um, before we jump into uh, teaching for this morning I just wanted to uh, I, I didn't recognize it last week but that was intentional I just wanted to give some space for the for the family uh, and what they were going through um, but a lot of you already know that we uh, we had a beloved member of our community go to be with the Lord um, a week ago from this past Friday, we, uh, we laid to rest uh, Peter Yost, which is uh, Anne and uh, Rose's father. And, uh, and so we had a, really, we celebrated. <laughs> we celebrated, we did. But, but they're still grieving when you lose a, a family member. And the body calls us to weep with those who weep and mourn. And that when one suffers, we all do. And so I just wanted to, uh, I just wanted to extend that out, if you're unaware of that, that we, we love Peter. Peter was a real source of encouragement for me. He was in his older years, and in the, you know in the wintertime, it gets pretty cold in here. <laughs> and I would, I would see him uh, troop it out and be right here. And uh, he's a man that served his family well. He served this country. So he's a man of self-sacrifice. And, uh, and I, we just want to take time to recognize his life. And if you haven't already, at some point before you leave today, you just keep this family in prayer and just encourage them and, and let them know you're thinking of them. So we love you guys, the family that's here. Um, but Peter will certainly be missed. But... We will see him soon. <laughs> Hallelujah. The grave has been conquered. Isn't that unbelievable? Like the grave has been conquered. Death does not have the final say. Death is not a friend that takes us to a better place. Death is an enemy, it says, of God, and God has defeated it. He's defeated it. It wasn't meant to be. Uh, and so we have victory over that. Um, all right. Well, this morning is uh, this morning's Mother's Day. Hallelujah. And... Uh, um, we, we do have flowers in the back, but more than that, I, I felt led, um, I feel 
that the best gift I could give, and I wasn't planning on doing this, was to speak into uh, something very specific for the women. And I feel God has really given me something I was not planning on sharing. Really, I really, I don't just say that to build suspense. I really had no plan of that. And I felt incredibly gripped by the Lord late Thursday to um, shift into what I was uh, wanted to share and really speak a message for for the the women, especially obviously mothers, but women uh, just in general. I want to speak into, and I feel that as a father uh, and a shepherd in this house, as one of them, I want to empower and encourage women to run fully after the callings that God has given you. I, I don't want there to be any restriction in in what you uh, and what God has placed in in your life and I pray that you would experience just liberation and freedom that you would know you've been anointed and called to to be world changers you're not you don't play a secondary role in God's story you are significant uh, and we're going to kind of look at the biblical narrative for that capture God's heart um, men don't check out <laughs> And I mean that for many reasons, but one of the primary reasons is I believe this message needs to be championed by the church, but especially men. Because I believe that a lot of the the brokenness that we see, the radical feminist movement that has emerged upon us, that is not birth of the Spirit of God, but it was birthed from real pain and injustice. And there's a real cry, there's a real cry for, I believe, within, within women to to walk and receive how God has made them. And if the men and, and the church in particular are silent, the alternative is this radical feminist movement, which is not birthed in the spirit of God. It does not carry the heart of God. It promises to liberate, but actually it's destroying women's lives. It's ruining their uniqueness and how God has made them. And we need the church, and again, men especially, to stand up and speak life and, this, and preserve the sanctity over women and the, the beauty of their life and how God has created them. Actually, the radical feminist movement, it's birthed really out of anger and manipulation. And and Ephesians 4 says, in your anger, do not sin, lest you give a place to the enemy. I believe we've got an entire movement right now that's really, honestly, it's demonic in origin because it's given a place because it's rooted in anger. And so we need to capture God's heart. We We need a movement that starts that really sees how Jesus, guys, Jesus liberates women. Jesus elevates women. He encourages women. He platforms women. He commissions women. He disciples women. He releases women. And this is the heart that we carry here this morning. Scriptures, scriptures and history reveal women are, again, are, they're not insignificant. They're not secondary. They, they are fierce. Women are bold. Women are courageous. They're influential. They're authoritative. They're anointed. To be, to be clear, this is a newsflash. Men and women are distinct. <laughs> uh, so this is not about blurring lines here. We are, we are made distinct, but both are made in the image of God. And there's ways in which a man images God that a female cannot, but there's ways that a female can image God that a man cannot. And we need both for the full picture of God. And so even though there's distinctions, it's not inferior. They're not relegated to the sidelines. <laughs> You can kind of do this ministry over here, but you can't do this. I, I, I pray that we really break and shift some paradigms this morning. Uh, and again, just release the women in this house. We have bold women in this room. We have fierce women. We have women that love Jesus. And, uh, and I, I want you to walk in. I, we need reformation for the perspective we have over women. And I feel the weight of the Lord on this assignment because I've got three, three boys, but I also have a daughter. And so I, I honestly, I feel, I, and it's not emotional because like, it's a sad thing. I just feel the weight of God on this, that I want my daughter to walk in all that God's made her to be. I want every woman here to walk in all that God has created you to be. 
I want the, your daughters and granddaughters to step into everything that God has made them to be. And so I, I just, again, I just want to bless you and I want to release you into that. Uh, we can't even go through history to see the way God has used women. <laughs> I mean, in the 19th century, there was a radical missionary movement. Two-thirds of it were women. <laughs> Uh, the largest church in uh, South Korea, uh, I didn't even get to watch the whole video, but Crystal was sending me David Chow. Yeah, uh, his whole thing, is, I mean, it's, it's amazing. His whole thing is that 90%, of, I think, of their leaders there are women pastors. He says the American church will never understand this until they understand the value of what God is doing with women. Uh, it's, just, it's just incredible. And so um, I pray that this would bless us. Um, we're not interested in some rah-rah message this morning. So I want to be clear in that. I'm not just saying, come on, women, we can do it. Uh, and, and it's like, but look, it's, it's not some blind faith. It's not some blind faith. I want to root your hearts in the meta-narrative of God's heart for women. I want you to see throughout Scripture how vital and valuable and significant and the role that women have played throughout the Scriptures. And, and again, we could go through history, but I want you, I want you to capture that. And so, um, and so with that, we're going to address... In, in large part, although we're going to hit a lot of things today, we're going to address in large part one of the most controversial scriptures in all uh, of the Bible. Hallelujah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so pray for me, your pastor. <laughs> uh, but in all honesty, I, I pray because, again, I, if we believe in something, we're not, we're not trying to pretend like something's not there. If we believe in something, I want you to know why we believe that. And so, look, some of you may not even agree with everything we say, and to a certain degree, I think that's okay because we're, we're unified into something larger. But I pray at the very least that you would understand the heart that this house carries, the leaders carry, and you would understand why we believe it is so biblical for a woman to be used in power in ministry. Amen? All right, so let's do this. So come with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. I honestly am not sure. We'll see how this all plays out. I feel like I have a lot of ground to cover, but we'll uh, hopefully um, get it all in. So 1 Timothy chapter 2. And so here's what I, I want to do, and I'll probably repeat this so that I don't lose you along the journey. But we're, we're starting in this, uh, in this text that has uh, posed a lot of challenges throughout church history, uh, particularly of, of late, I feel like. And it's really dominant in the Western church. Um, which is a whole nother thing. I, it makes me wonder what's in the heart of the Western culture and church that has taken two verses and isolated the rest of the testimony of scriptures. Um, but what I want us to see ultimately is I'm going to read this text with us, and then I just want you to be clear. We're going to back out and kind of do like a 30,000-foot view of culture, of what was going on the day, look at the testimony of scriptures from Old Testament, New Testament, Jesus' interaction with women, and especially Paul's other scriptures on the role of women in ministry. Because when you see how he is so advocating for women, when we come back into this text, what my hope is, is that we will see that there is something very specific that Paul is addressing in this situation that is not a universal law for all the churches of all ages. It can't be because Paul in other places is so clearly running side by side with women in ministry as apostles and prophets and teachers. So let's just, let's read this. And then again, we're not really going to unpack it until the very end, but I want you to see it on the front end. So verse 8, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. He says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So he's really coming against hypocrisy, right? Uh, that we would lift our hands, but we wouldn't be stuck in unforgiveness and fighting with one another. And then he shifts to the women. 
He says, likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. I promise we're going to unpack this at the end. Uh, but with what it is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. And these next two verses are the two verses. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, uh, and self-control. Hallelujah. <laughs> You guys with me this morning? I really feel the weight. I promise at the end, we're going to pray for women. I believe there's going to be some powerful, powerful breakthrough. So here's what I, I want you to see. I wanted you to see this on the front end that these two verses, there's two verses here that have essentially been, I think, isolated and a rigid policy has been formulated for the church that has essentially wiped out half of the labor force of the kingdom of God. Has just basically silenced them. And again, what I want to do is I want to take this 30,000-foot view and kind of work through Scripture and culture and history to understand. And I believe when we come back into this text at the end and I tell you what I think is happening, I think we will have a radically different perspective. And I pray that just we would be, in a good way, we'd be challenged by the Word of God. You know, tradition is different than Scripture. And a lot of times, sometimes tradition's good, sometimes tradition's terrible. And sometimes we're holding the things that's really tradition passed down from man to man, and we're not really in line with the truth of God's heart. Amen? So there's something specific going on um, that we'll get into, but I, I want to equate it this way, just so you hear this. If we're not careful and we don't see the full testimony of Scripture and then kind of wrestle through what's happening here, this is no different than if I were to read through Acts and get to Acts 16 and see where Paul and Barnabas are forbidden to go into Asia, and you stop right there and say, there it is, we should not evangelize in Asia anymore. It's written. It's written. They're forbidden to go in Asia. That's it. It's over. But if you stop and look at all the other scriptures of God's heart to disciple the nations, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And then if you look at the rest of Acts and see eventually the door would be open to go into Asia, all of us know that there was only a restriction that was temporary for a specific situation. It wasn't universal, and that's what we're going to ultimately see when we come back to this, that I believe that there was a restriction in this particular community because of a very specific situation. But when you look at all the other scriptures and testimony of God's heart, we find that it's, uh, it's actually quite counter to what we may read here. So here's what we need to do. You guys, we're going we're gonna to run through a lot of stuff, all right? Um, and it's going to be beautiful. And before we go into the testimony of text, I want us to understand the culture of the day that this was being written in, okay? And here's why. This is very important, guys. Biblical culture is not the same as the biblical message. That's very, very important. Because if we make the two the same, we think that everything that was going on in the culture is also inspired and holy and reflective of the heart of God. But if that's the case, then we're also obligated to hold to polygamy. We're, 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 we should hold to slavery. In fact, sadly, a lot of the abuses in this own nation of slavery is because we didn't understand poor hermeneutics. We thought that because Paul talked about the role of slave and masters, that Paul and God's heart was necessarily advocating. No, no, no. That's just what's going on in the culture. 
And in the same way, what you'll find in many ways is that women in Scripture were given a secondary role, not because that's reflective of God's heart, but actually, actually reflective of the culture of the day, which was a patriarchal society, man-driven. What you will actually find is that over and over, Christianity is breaking through the barriers of these things and radically, to an unthinkable measure, elevating women to a status that what we will see will actually be equal with men. All are firstborn sons in Christ Jesus, neither male nor female. This was radical thought. In every single way, the story and the message of the Bible is lifting women up, not subordinating them, not pushing them down. Amen. So it's important to understand that this is the culture, the culture of the day. And so let me just share just a few things to give you a picture. And this just is cliff notes. But it's important we understand how women were viewed in first century culture when Paul was writing this. Women were seen, and by the way, these are like brilliant scholars who spend their lives in history uh, who, who have just traced this. Women were seen, and you don't even need to be a Christian to know this. This is just history. Women were seen as just a little higher than animals in the day of the first century. At the age of five, boys were allowed to continue in education while women were prohibited from formal education. So you wonder why there's so much restriction, by the way, on women teaching. It's not because they're not able to teach. It's because they don't have an education. Paul's actually telling them here, as we'll come back into, first learn in quiet. Actually, that's a radical statement right there because he's actually encouraging women to learn and they weren't allowed to. In the end, he's going to bring them back to a place to be able to actually teach, but not yet. Uh, no, uh, their purpose was to essentially serve the household, which there's truth in that, but that was the sole purpose. They were not of equal stature in a spiritual community. They were prohibited from Torah study, from worship, from being able to hear the teaching of God's word. They weren't allowed. Women couldn't testify in courts. Do you know why the resurrection is so, one of the reasons why it's so profound is who's the first witness? Women. This is unbelievable. This is so radical that women couldn't testify and God says, I'm going to take the most central aspect of the Christian faith, the resurrection of the Son of God. This thing falls apart, the whole faith falls apart, and I'm going to entrust it into a woman's life to go and testify to other people. You didn't do this. We'll come back into that. Women were viewed as stupid, irrational, easily deceived, untrustworthy, unteachable, and sexually uncontrollable. Therefore, they were cloistered indoors, denied civil rights, mainly treated like slaves and denied educational opportunities. This is the type of culture that we're dealing with when Paul begins to write these things. So when we start to see how God is using women, this is mind-blowing what the Lord is doing. Now here's the thing is that mindset, sadly, has infiltrated the church and was passed down. I just want you to just trace this, how this, honestly, it's really what we're going to see is it's more of a pagan sexist view of women that comes from Greek philosophy, and it really came into the church and has been passed through and it really still bears weight in a, lot of, in a lot of communities and even seminaries today. So I want you to just hear me on this, is that I am not, I'm going to quote some individuals that I love that have deeply shaped my walk with Jesus, and, and uh, man, I would, I would still quote them from this place. But I also want you to know that just because you have individuals that in one area have given gold doesn't mean their entire theology was good. <laughs> And there's a lot of times where you can, I've learned, the, does that mean you throw them away? Absolutely not, because none of us could stand them. <laughs> I've learned the generosity of God is unbelievable, that he can work through people that in one area pass on a rich inheritance, and in another area you say, what in the world are you talking about? But God blessed them and worked through it, and not because God approved of that teaching, but he's just so gracious. And so I want to just be clear that I'm not demonizing any of these individuals, not by any means. We should study and learn from them. But it's important to place a filter when you're reading and know, wait a minute, I'm not just going to blanketly take this. Is this really in alignment with the scriptures? And this is what's been passed. So this is important. A lot of the thought 
of, of how the church views women is connected to Greek philosophy. Why? Because when Christianity came on the scenes, the dominant culture was the Greek culture. Even though the Romans was the empire, even the Romans were, really followed the Hellenistic culture. The New Testament is written in Greek. So the Greek philosophers had a profound impact. In fact, many of them saw Plato, even though he wasn't a Christian, as some strange prophetic forerunner that was setting the stage for Christianity. So how, what was the Greek philosophy? I mean, this just barely scratches the surface. But Aristotle, he said women are defective by nature because of biology. Just because of who they are. They're just defective. He said they're, they're defective males is also how Aristotle would put it. Plato, Plato said women are not completely human. Plato said women are not completely human because they lack masculine characteristics. Listen, this, they get worse in some ways, so just, just bear with me. But just, just re, re, we got to reserve ourselves <laughs> because there's something really sobering here. Overall, the thought of the Greek thought was, this is bizarre, that because women were soft to the touch, physically softer, that that meant that they were just weaker, especially when it came to being susceptible to deception. That's how they just viewed them. They're soft to the touch. Overall, they're just weaker. They're, they're, they are defective males is what there was. Now, here's the problem is that the early church fathers were deeply impacted by the Greek thought. Now, again, I would quote these men from other places at other times, so I'm not, I'm not putting against, but we need to know this. Jerome, a fourth century monk, he said this, as long as a woman is for birthing children, she is different from man as his body from soul. But if she wishes to serve Christ more than the world, then she will cease to be a woman and be called a man. So if she wants to essentially, if she wants to really pursue Christ, then ultimately she has to abandon her womanhood because only really men can run after Jesus is what it's essentially saying. John Christum said, the woman taught once and ruined all. On this account, let her not teach ever again. The whole female race transgressed. Let her not, however, grieve. God hath no small consolation than that of childbearing. What's he saying? She sinned when she taught, messed up, but don't worry, she should not be too grieved. At least God has allowed her to bear children, and that will be the sole extent of her purpose now in life. What you'll find passed down is this is what many thought. The extent of a woman's life now is to be basically a subject to the man for childbirth, and that's it. Uh, St. Augustine was deeply impacted by Greek thought. He carried the unbiblical doctrine that women aren't even made in the image of God. This is a church father. He said, what's the difference in a wife or a mother? It is still Eve, the temptress, that we must be aware of in any woman. I fail to see what use women can be to men if one excludes the function of childbearing. So if she can't bear a child, first of all, she's made for man, only for man. If she can't bear children, what use is she? Now, what, this is where Augustine and these others, what, what you'll find as you trace through church history is that the reformers were deeply impacted, especially by Augustine. Martin Luther especially said that there's no man that impacted him more than Augustine. Again, there are things that these men have taught, Luther, Knox, Calvin, that I have been so enriched by and will continue to be. But their view of women was more in line with a pagan view from the Greeks than with God's heart in the scripture. Martin, uh, Martin Luther said in the 1500s, he said, a woman is not fully the master of herself. God fashioned her body so that she would be with a man and to have into real children and no woman should be ashamed of that for which God has made and intended her. So again, what's the sole purpose of a woman? Bear children. That's it. There's no other place, especially not in ministry. That's your purpose. John Knox said, woman in her greatest perfection was made to serve and obey man. That's it. Those are pretty weighty quotes. <laughs> um, but it's not, I believe, it's not in alignment with the heart of God. 
and it's not reflective of what we see in Scripture. And so what I want to do is I want to run through some Scripture with you to ultimately see the beauty of, of God's heart for women from Old Testament to new with Jesus and then Paul, and then we'll finish out with 1 Timothy, all right? Does that sound good? So I'll actually have you look at some scriptures in a moment if you, have the, you don't have to put up yet in Paul. I just want you to stay with me on this, though. I want you to see the overview of the biblical emphasis of women, and I want you to see that women are not secondary, but they're world changers. Let's look at the Old Testament. When God formed the crown jewel of his creation, when God formed the pinnacle of his creation, who did he create? Male and female. Both made in the image of God. Verse 28 of Genesis 1 says, and both were blessed by God and both were commissioned to go and be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth. That's authority from God. Both were commissioned for intimacy and authority right from the beginning. When Moses, the deliverer, needed saving, God sent Miriam, a prophetess, to save him. When the Jews needed victory against the impenetrable walls of Jericho, God raised up Rahab. When Israel faced the threat of extinction under the wicked plan of Haman, God raised up Esther. When God wanted to foreshadow Jesus as our redeemer kinsman, God raised up Ruth. When Israel lost their way and needed deliverance, God raised up Deborah. Guys, Deborah in Judges 4 and 5, this is profound. Deborah was not only a prophetess, which means that she was a mouthpiece for God to Israel for 40 years, but she was also a judge, a deliverer. The judge held the highest position of authority in Israel. In fact, in Judges 5, verse 7, she writes a song after her victory, which, by the way, that's significant. Do you know how many scriptures are actually written by women? There's a good amount, considering how poorly women were viewed. The fact that their voice is included in this, is this word authoritative? Women's voices are in this. Deborah writes a song. Miriam has a song. Elizabeth prophesied over Jesus. Anna has a prophecy in the New Testament. Women's voices are all throughout this, and that's authoritative, and that would have been insane considering the day. But she, she pens a song after her victory in Judges 5, and in it she, she refers to herself as, I arose as the mother of Israel. That is actually a Hebraic uh, term for governmental office. She, she carried this, this profound place of authority and anointing in Israel. And what I love about that is she's the mother of Israel, which means that in order for her to lead, she did not have to abandon her femininity. She didn't have to lead and carry out her duties in a masculine way. As a mother, she was leading and ruling with authority. That's profound. Are women distinct? Absolutely, men. But you have been called to lead. You have been called with authority. She had such an anointing on her life, it says in Judges 4, 5, that the sons of Israel would come to her for judgment, meaning when, when they needed to understand how to work something out, there was such a spirit of wisdom on her life that they would come to her. The sons of Israel, that's the men coming before her, recognizing the anointing that's on her life. The, the chief warrior of Israel of the day was Barak. He so recognized the anointing on Deborah's life that when it came to battle, he refused to go into battle unless she went in with him. She understood it. In Judges 9, this is another crazy story. There's a man by the name of Abimelech who is a Jew who's basically committed treason and he's leading Israel into apostasy. I mean, they're leading into idolatry. The whole nation is falling apart. And what does God do? It says there is a certain woman in Judges 9.53. Doesn't even give her name. A certain woman who goes on a roof, takes a millstone, and drops it on Abimelech's head to stop this tyrant. (laughs) This is amazing. Hits his head. His skull gets crushed, but he's still alive. And he cries out to his servant with his last breath, Quick, bring a sword and stab me so that I will die and it will not be said that a woman killed me. (laughs) 
But this is what I love. It's a certain woman. I was reading something that just so, it just rocked me that this woman, she's unknown, but to God, she was God's secret weapon. And I read something that just absolutely cut me to the core and it said, how many spiritual victories have been eluded in the church because we are unaware of the value of a certain woman in our gathering? And when there was an Abimelech that rose up leading a people in the apostasy, rather than letting the woman who wanted to crush him go ahead, we said, no, you stay on the side for you're weak and passive. This is not for you. No, no, no. She crushed his head. <laughs> Anyone who thinks the Bible's not exciting has not read it. How many victories have been eluded because there was something taking place and there was a woman that was ready to rise up. We had said, no, 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 you sit on the sidelines for this one. It's not reflective of what we see in the heart of God. <laughs> and then you fast forward to the New Testament. When we needed a savior, God raised up a peasant girl by the name of Mary. When we needed the news of Jesus' resurrection, as I said before, God sent Mary Magdalene. Where were the men? Hiding in a room, afraid for their lives. But, but listen, I, I, I know it's, it's it, but it, actually it's, it's really important to see those things. Hiding. And there was a woman who was raised up. And I said this before, but we need to hear this. The, the resurrection of Jesus is the most central aspect of the Christian faith. Paul says if Christ isn't raised, our whole faith is futile. Who did God entrust to carry this message that is of the utmost significance? A woman. This is profound, guys. You would never do this, but God, God, this is how God sees, how, sees women. He's elevating their status. You know what's amazing? In 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul begins to write about the resurrection tradition, he's starting to polish it up a little bit, and he starts to write about all the people that Jesus appeared to. This is only in 50 AD. Do you know who Paul includes or doesn't include? The women. Paul doesn't once write any of the women in that appearance. And it's again because I, I believe and many scholars believe not that Paul had a poor view, but he understood he's making a polished tradition and if it included women, it would never be received. By 50 AD, the story is already being tweaked a little bit. But in every single gospel account, the first person to see and the first person to testify was the women. Hallelujah. It didn't include them. In the same way that when it says the feeding of the 5,000, if you notice, there's a little side mark. It says there were 5,000. That's just the men. Women and children weren't even included. Wouldn't even include that number. So that 5,000 was just men because women had no value to even being included in a census like that. When God sent the long-awaited promise of the Holy Spirit, think about this, the long-awaited promise, the promise of Ezekiel, of, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, this eschatological end-time spirit that would bring about the renewal of all things. Who would God pour out the Spirit on? Acts 2, sons and daughters. Sons and daughters would be empowered by the Holy Spirit and commissioned to go in the anointing of God to extend his kingdom. It wasn't just on sons. Jesus' interaction with women, think about this. His theology is perfect, yes? So when you see Jesus, you see perfect theology. When you see Jesus, you see the Father. That's what he said. John 4, Jesus has an encounter with a Samaritan woman where in every way he breaks every single social barrier. Every barrier put in place. You see the heart of the Father for women. John 8, a woman caught in adultery. All the men want to stone her. Well, where was the man that was caught with her? Nowhere to be found because that would be irrelevant. But Jesus came around and lifted this woman up, came and silenced the voice of accusers. Because Jesus represents the Father, every single time you see Jesus with a woman, you need to see this is a father-daughter moment. This is a picture of the father extending his heart towards daughters. But listen, as amazing as Jesus' interaction with women in healing and restoring, 
If he just healed and restored women, that would be phenomenal. Because again, you could easily just overlook them as second-class citizens. But Jesus doesn't just heal, restore, deliver. What really is just so profound is he then includes them in his ministry. Women were disciples of Jesus. It's all throughout Gospels. This, again, I can't say this enough. This is absolutely mind-blowing. That a woman was following a male rabbi, you weren't allowed to learn in these days. Jesus is breaking through all of these cultural norms. So you'll see over and over, it's talking about women following. One of the best examples, it's just outright scandalous, is Mary and Martha. Mary is found. What's, Martha's busy working, right? And what's Mary doing? Sitting at the feet of Jesus. That's not just a position of rest. That's actually a posture describing a disciple. For example, in Acts 22.3, Paul, when giving his resume, says, I was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. So when it says Mary's sitting at the feet, they're saying, what? Mary's with the men being discipled by Jesus. This is scandalous. And here's what's so incredible is what is essentially a disciple? A teacher in training. Women can't speak. I don't see that by Jesus. Every disciple, the goal is at the end that you would fully emulate the ministry of your rabbi. The Great Commission we see this, what's the great commission? That every disciple should go and make disciples. And what's a central part of disciple making? Teaching them all that I've commanded you. So if there is a woman who is a disciple, the expectation is that they're going to become a disciple of Christ and then make disciples by teaching. Teaching who? The children? That's a beautiful calling, but that's not what it's saying. Teaching other women? That's a beautiful calling, but that's not what it's saying. It's a commission to go out into the world. <laughs> Preach to the nations. Extend the kingdom of God. There's no reservations put on that. Man has placed that on, I believe. But you've been called. I could go to so many other parts in Scripture. Let's go to Paul real quick, if my wife can bring these up, and then we'll come back in 1 Timothy. Yeah, Philippians, we'll start there. So the Old Testament places a significant value on women in ministry. New Testament, Jesus especially, who's perfect theology. But I think what's maybe most Important for us this morning is to see Paul's own theology since he penned 1 Timothy 2. And what I hope we'll see is that Paul writes very differently in other places, which again brings us to the question of, wait a minute then, what was Paul addressing? Just like we would never say, as I mentioned before, that we should never evangelize Asia because of what it says in Acts 16. So I want to read three verses to you. Hopefully you guys can kind of see this. I'll maybe step over here a little bit. But we'll hit the two in depth. But this is Philippians 4.3. And Paul's writing obviously to the church at Philippi. And in verse three, he says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So what role were women playing in Paul's ministry? They were subordinate. They were kind of just picking up the loose ends. No, they were side by side. That's an expression for co-laboring. What, what are things that Paul did? Preached the gospel, planted churches. He was an apostle. He I mean, was used in authority. He demonstrated the kingdom. As we'll see, this is the same expectation that Paul had for women as well. Side-by-side -side ministry. Look at Romans 16. This is, this is incredible. Paul, Paul is writing. This is the end of Romans 16. And Paul is writing about blessings. And he's, 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 he's asking people to... Um, to greet people and then he's commending people. He does this often in, at the end of his letters. And what that means is Paul essentially, it's like me writing a letter here and saying, oh, greet, 
greet Dina for me, you know? So he's greeting people, he's asking to, for them to greet on his behalf, but then he's also commending people to Rome, which means he's basically vouching for their ministry. And what's so significant is that Paul commends more women's ministries than men in this. So significant. Like this is, this is, it just doesn't hit us as the way it would then saying, are you kidding me that Paul is running and laboring side by side with this many ladies? Let's, let's look at a few. Look at the first one. Verse one says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, hallelujah, Phoebe, my daughter's name, a servant of the church, listen, a servant of the church at Sancria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. So the first thing he does, he commends to the church of Rome. He says, I commend to you Phoebe. Now, a few things I want to note here. Number one, the reason why he starts with Phoebe is because Phoebe was the one who was entrusted to carry the letter to the Romans. There is not a more significant, theologically weightier message than the book of Romans. And who would Paul entrust to carry this letter right under the nose of Caesar, who's trying to crush the Christian movement? He entrusted to a female. Do you think Paul had a distorted view of women? Not at all. In fact, most believe that whoever delivers the letter would then also be responsible to share the letter. Which means it was probably accepted that when Phoebe gets to this church, she would arrive and then she would be the one in the congregation to read the word to everyone else. And then what would most likely happen is questions would arise, especially in a letter like Romans. And they'd be saying, what does Paul mean here? And so they'd be saying, wait, Phoebe, what does Paul mean right here? What does he mean right here? And Phoebe would actually be instructing them in the word of the Lord to this community. Paul sees no issue with that whatsoever in this letter. It says that Phoebe is also, if you notice, it says that she is a servant. If you see that, it says that she, uh, um, that right in the second part of verse 1, a servant of the church at Sancria. Servant can mean uh, deaconess, so one of authority. But also, it's a word that Paul uses all the time to describe his own ministry. I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is merely a term designating someone who has the responsibility of sharing the word of God. It's a minister of the word of God. So by saying Phoebe is a servant at the church of Sancria, she's most likely a minister of the gospel at Sancria. She teaches the gospel there. And it says that she is a patron. If you notice that, Paul says that she's a patron of myself and many others, therefore take care of her. Patron literally means helper, supporter. Again, the wide belief is that she actually had the house that the church at Sancria was meeting in. We shouldn't be surprised by this because in Acts 16, Lydia is the one who's opened her house up to Paul where the church at Philippi was started. And whoever has, the church, whoever has the house that everyone's meeting in was put in a place of esteemed honor and dignity if that was your house. This is not like some on the, hey, I'll give you a little responsibility here, here and there. To, in the eyes of Paul, based off of just scriptural evidence, Phoebe is a heavy hitter. Phoebe has is, is got authority. She's carrying this letter. She's going to teach. She's a minister of the gospel. And Paul says, I have no problem commending her. I run, this is who I run with. Look at the next uh, verse three. He says, greet, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, verse four, who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. This is incredible. These are individuals who risk their life for the gospel and all the Gentile churches recognize them. Notice what's listed here, Priscilla and Aquila. Now, I always was confused, but Priscilla is the female there. Quilla is kind of a weird name, but Priscilla is the female. But what I want you to notice something is that who is listed first? 
Priscilla. Now we would say, no big deal. Uh-uh. That is an ancient method of designating one who has higher authority, one who takes the lead role. Paul and Barnabas in book of Acts. It's, first it was Barnabas, but afterwards Paul takes over the ministry. It's always Paul and Barnabas. It wants you to know that Paul has the lead role. When it says Priscilla and Aquila here, a ministry that's touching all the Gentile churches, who's really taking the dominant lead role? Priscilla is. In fact, to go even further, in Acts 18, there's a man by the name of Apollos who comes on the scene. Now, Apollos, just so you know, guys, this is another heavy hitter. He's, some think he wrote the book of Hebrews. I, I don't know if I'd necessarily agree, but nevertheless, that just tells you the class he was in, that some would even say maybe he wrote that. But do you know when Priscilla and Aquila in Acts 18 find Apollos? And they said even though he was fervent for the Lord, he, was, he was still had a lot to learn because he only knew of the baptism of John. He didn't know the baptism of Jesus and the Spirit of God, really. And you know what it says? It says Priscilla and Aquila take him aside and teach him a more excellent way. Who's teaching him? Priscilla. Priscilla teaching Apollos, teaching him the way of the Lord, a more excellent way. Hallelujah. Paul is fully aware of all of these things. Look, look at verse, uh, you can't really see it, but it says, greet um, Adronicus and Junia. The symbols blocked it. The rebuke you symbol. <laughs> greet Adronicus and Junia. Uh, I, I think it says like fellow kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They, listen, they are well known or they are highly uh, established or, or outstanding, it says, among the apostles. Every, look, scholars believe and all know that uh, Adronicus and Junia, they're apostles. Junia is a female. It's a female. Actually, it's really, it's really bizarre. The only way that traditionalists have tried to go about this is they've tried to say Junia is just a shorthand form for a male. There is no, there is no, everyone has gone to manuscripts. Everyone's starting to realize that is just ridiculous to do that. They have to be confronted with what does Paul mean when he's acknowledging a woman as an apostle here. Guys, this is amazing. That's a woman who carries authority in the church. So the, Paul is commending church planners, deacons, ministers of the gospel, ones who carry the letter, apostles, prophets. This is who Paul ran with. Hallelujah. Let's go to uh, Galatians 3. Did I give you Galatians 3? <laughs> if you can bring it up there. We're almost, this is my last text on Paul, and then we're going to come back into Timothy, close it out, and then we're going to bless women this morning. I hope, or, or, is this encouraging, some of the ladies? Because again, I want you, I don't want you just to have a blind a blind faith. I want you to see the scriptures and I want you to be able to, to run without any reservation. So I'm going to read this through and then we'll unpack this. This is incredible. This is essentially the Magna Carta of the spirit order. In other words, if you want to know for Paul, what is it now that we have in the age of the spirit? Paul comes back to a similar expression like this, which is actually almost the same expression that Joel says, or Peter quotes Joel in Acts 2. It's very similar language. So let's read it. This is what the age of the Spirit brings. Verse 26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith, not through gender. You're all sons of God through faith. For as many as of you, uh, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, very important. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ. Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Um, I just want you to know, I, I told Caesar like what was on my heart, not specifics, and Caesar had 
like three visions Saturday morning, and one was about uh, women being clothed and robed, and that would blew my mind because that's what we're about to see right here about what this is saying of, uh, of women being robed with first, first sun robes is what this is happening. So I want you to see what Paul says. He says, now in the age of the spirit, you are all sons through faith. This is profound because what does that mean? That means that you have every person, Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, free, you are sons. And what that's, he's pulling on a cultural principle, which is that in a household, if a daughter had brothers, she had zero rights, zero inheritance. She had zero authority. She had, she had nothing. But Paul is now saying in Christ, all of you now, Jew, Gentile, free, slave, male, female, you are all sons in Christ before the Father now. Now, it's not just any sons, though. What he's really emphasizing is firstborn sonship. And firstborn sonship, Jesus is the firstborn, meaning if you were firstborn in the family of God, you were the one who had all inheritance, all authority. So to give you an example, so look at this part. Paul breaks this open by saying, um, as you were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. He gives a clothing metaphor that's going to cement firstborn sonship. And what, what is he saying? To put on Christ means literally it's, a, it's like putting on the cloak of Christ, what it's saying. And that implies two things. Number one, inheritance. For this is, this is like Joseph in the Old Testament. He received the cloak of the father, and therefore what that really was is he was receiving firstborn sonship. This is why the brothers wanted to kill him, not just because the father was showing some favor, but because they knew if he gets that cloak, he has access to the inheritance above us. What is, Jesus, what is it saying about Jesus here? In Christ, male and female have the firstborn cloak now. You have the inheritance. This is, this is prodigal son coming back and being cloaked. God, this, is so, this is so incredible. He's saying for women, Jesus is so radically uplifting uh, the, the, the status of women. It's almost unthinkable. For a woman would have no rights. And now he's saying, in Christ, in the age of the Spirit, you've been elevated to the status of a firstborn son. The inheritance is yours, and you don't have to fight for it. No man gave it to you. No man can take it away. This is in Christ. You've been clothed with this. So walk in your robes of inheritance. But here's the other thing is that it not only signifies the clothing of Christ, inheritance, but it also signifies authority and anointing. So, for example, Elijah passed on his mantle to Elisha. Well, what does that mean? He was clothed with a robe, and he walked in power and authority. In Luke 24, what does Jesus say to his disciples? Wait in Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high. To put on Christ is not put on the last name of Jesus. Christ is the anointed one. So as in Christ, in the age of the Spirit, something has radically shifted. Men and women now have firstborn status, which means you have inheritance and you have authority and anointing, power. Who did the Spirit of God fall on an axe? Male and female were up in the 120. That means, ladies, you are clothed with power to speak and declare with utterance mysteries of God and to proclaim the gospel with anointing. This is, this is the order of the Spirit now. For Paul, he's saying this is what's happened. Which means this, he says there's neither Jew nor Gentile now, right? That whole expression, neither male nor female. This is really important. To the extent that a church is operating in the spirit is based on the extent of which 
Um, these human barriers are becoming less and less a place of division. They're becoming more and more relevant. That's what Paul's saying. In other words, in a, in a community where they're still fighting over authority, power, saying I, a man saying, no, I'm in authority, a woman saying, no, I, I have authority, Paul says that's the sign of the present age that's falling apart. That's the sign that's marked. But in the age of the Spirit, how do you know a community that's been touched by the Spirit of God? Everyone recognizes they've been elevated to firstborn status. And everyone in Christ now has inheritance and has authority now. Now, we have unique roles and ways that we play that, but no one is subordinate, no one is inferior. The more we know that we're moving in the Spirit of God, the more we're recognizing the anointing on every single person's life. This is, this is, this is so transformative for what was happening. I don't know. I, I'm like, so I feel so excited for the women. I just feel breaking things off that has been shared. And guys, this is Paul's teaching. So summary for Paul Women are apostles, prophets, they're teaching, they're carrying letters, they're anointed, they're like firstborn sons, they have all inheritance. I mean, the list goes on and on and on, and so finally we end by coming back into 1 Timothy chapter 2. So if you would, if you haven't turned, great, but if you have, come back to 1 Timothy 2. And again, I remind you, for those that came in, that we're not looking to mirror what we see happening in the world that's fighting for women that's actually destroying women but this is from the heart of God and this will produce life in our community so here we are first Timothy chapter 2 and again we'll just close here in light of all that we shared all the scriptures in light of even Paul's other teachings you come back into the scripture and you have to say, hold on, wait a minute. After everything we've gone through, now Paul's saying, women, be silent in church. Don't, don't even open your mouth. It's like, this doesn't even sound right. It seems like he's so contradicting himself, himself the scriptures. I didn't even show, 1 Corinthians 11.5, Paul will so contradict this because he'll say in the gathering, it was about head coverings, but he says women, when they pray and prophesy in the gathering. So Paul's talking about women openly praying and prophesying. 1 Corinthians 12 about the spiritual gifts in the community. Paul never mentions gender as a requirement. He just says God has richly bestowed and graced every member of the community. Those gifts would open, gifts that are spoken publicly in the community. Paul would advocate for that. Paul actually says in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, he places prophecy above teaching, if you really want to make that case, which means if he outrightly says women can prophesy in the gathering, are we assuming then for an inferior thing that he would say they can't do that? Of course not. All that to say is, say, wait a minute, this, this is where we as students have to wrestle with things and go through these things and not just read two verses and shut our eyes and hearts to the whole testimony of the scriptures and, again, of Paul's writing. So here's all I'm going to do because of time's sake. Um, I can't unpack everything, but there's pretty much two, I think, two really uh, dominant views as to the specific situation that Paul was addressing, and I'll leave it with that. You can wrestle with them uh, as I share and just give you kind of the summary and then we're going to invite women up to pray over you and your callings and be clothed and robed in inheritance and power. Uh, so all of this was building up for an encounter. So here's the first thing, guys. Here's the first thing. The first thing that, that some say this is what Paul's addressing is that there is, uh, Paul's writing to Timothy in Ephesus. And if any of you guys know, in Ephesus, there is a temple in the middle of the city. It was the temple of Diana, or in Greek, it's Artemis. This was actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Now, Diana is the goddess of fertility, which is important as well for this text. And basically, here's what happened. The whole temple was run by priestess. It was run by, by females. And there, some say up to, upwards of 1,000. And what they would do is they would essentially, uh, you, a male would come into the temple, 
and in, this is the way you'd show worship. You'd pay a temple tax fee, and then you would be put with a priestess, and essentially you would engage in a sexual relationship, and that would be worship unto Diana. Okay, that's what would take place. So this was a really dark, perverted thing. In Acts 19, when Paul comes into Ephesus, the reason why the whole city is being turned upside down is because all the businesses that are supported by this temple are getting shut down because people are getting saved and they're no longer worshiping these idols, right? But the point is, this is at the heart of it. And so some say what's happening here is that when Paul writes specifically about braided hair and gold, he's actually describing the attire of those women who were priestess that were now trying to come into the church gathering. They would be done up in a certain way. Honestly, in many ways, the way you would find, to say it crudely, a prostitute today, you could drive down a street and you could just say, that's not good, that's bad news right there, right? You can recognize. In many ways, they would come in, there was a recognizable attire. But this is significant, guys, because Paul's saying, don't have braided hair, don't wear gold. I'm looking around this room and there's women with braided hair and gold on. But think about it. We know, intrinsically, we know that that's cultural, but why do we take out of the five things, four things to be cultural that are non-binding on us and take the one about women teaching and say, this is law for eternity? What is that revealing about the hearts? Why are we wrestling through that? I think it's just, honestly, just poor study, really. And, and I know there's some really uh, individuals that love the Lord. I would just say, I would just challenge that that's not great hermeneutics. <laughs> so look at verse 12. Um, to, to further this point, uh, it says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a male. Based on what I just said, some say what was happening is that these priests were coming in and the authority that's used here is not the authority, the Greek word is exousia, that's the good authority. That's the authority that Christ gives us. This is a different word that means to dominate, to usurp, to control, to manipulate. Many would say Paul would equally not want men to have this type of authority over women. The point is that these priestess were coming in trying to do what they did in the temple in this community, forcing themselves to try to dominate the gatherings here. And Paul's saying, I do not permit these women to teach. And then lastly, to maybe support that, is that whole expression of Adam and Eve. Well, remember, Diana is the goddess of fertility. And so some say that the, specifically what they were teaching was a very distorted, perverted view of fertility. And so Paul plays on this picture of Adam and Eve and fertility back then as a way to counter it. And there's a lot of things to that. Um, but that's one approach to this. That's what's happening. You guys with me? The second one that I think is... Uh, is maybe I would even probably lean more towards in my own heart, is that the dominant issue that's also happening in, this, in these letters, and we don't have time to seal the clues, but Paul's addressing uh, newsflash false teachers. <laughs> that happens a lot. Um, and he, what he's specifically addressing, and he says it in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, these false teachers were coming in and preying on women. If you know the letters, they were going house to house. Have you guys ever read that? It's very clear in these letters. They were going house to house to the women and preying on them, causing them to fall into sexual sin. And the problem was, why were they more susceptible to deception? Because they weren't allowed to learn. They were uneducated. So these false teachers were going there. And so there was a really rampant problem of women being deceived and then their teaching and it's deception. That's why Paul maybe draws on the Adam and Eve picture because Eve was deceived and as a deceived teacher, she's teaching Adam and deceiving him. So Paul draws and says, no, don't do that. So what's Paul's instructions? He doesn't silence women. He does something revolutionary. He says, learn quietly. He's, he's actually not silencing them from the ability of teaching. All he's saying is let them learn quietly first. And then the long-term solution is I think that they would be able to then be able to, to teach. But he doesn't say just tell them they shouldn't do this. He says, no, they need to learn quietly. We often emphasize, on, uh, we often emphasize the quiet part, but we should emphasize the learning part because women weren't allowed to learn. Paul is elevating women here. And the quiet part, we shouldn't be surprised by that because that's, a, that's an expression that's used for how uh, first century learners always learned. 
They were to learn in quiet, it would say. That was the beginning stage. And then after you became more mature, then you would have more of a platform to be able to share with others. And so this is what perhaps Paul was doing here. Hallelujah. Let's stand. I was going to ask, just especially for the ladies, just I want you to prepare your hearts to encounter grace, encounter Holy Spirit before you leave. I know it's Mother's Day, and I know there's plans to run into, but I just, I really sense what I did right there, that, that's, everything I shared was not the, even the end goal. It's this moment right here. To have your hearts ready to encounter, to break lies, to be empowered, to find your voice. Another vision that Caesar uh, saw, and I may not get it perfect, but he saw from the altar going out. No women were coming forward yet. He saw from the altar like a wind going, and it was just touching and, and powerfully knocking women to the floor. And um, I, that, that, that's just the main thing there is that's a sign. The Spirit of God was moving from, from the teaching out, and it was coming and, and clothing them with power. So I'm just going to ask if, if you're, women can uh, certainly lay hands on a woman, but if you're a male, you don't have to necessarily lay hands on the lady unless she's okay with that. You want to put your hand on her shoulder. But especially if you're a male, if you want to just extend an arm next to a female around you, and you don't have to pray loud, but if you would just join in with me and just begin to bless them and speak over them life and let them know that you're praying. Again, you don't need to yell, but let them hear, hear your words of life speaking over them. Right now, God, we're lifting up every lady in this house. We thank you, God. We thank you for their life. We thank you, God, for the dignity that they have, God. Thank you that you are a liberator of women. You commission women. You train women. Go ahead. Keep praying as I'm praying. Come on. Let's fill this. Let's make this a house of prayer. Cover these women in prayer. There's so much desiring to silence the voice of women. We've got a distorted culture. God, we pray for a breaking and a loosing over this radical feminist movement, God, that's destroying women's lives, God. We pray you would come crashing in, God, and you would touch wounds. You would touch the wounds of those women, God, that are really aching for something good, God, but in all the wrong ways. We ask, God, that you'd come and bring them true freedom, true liberty, God, that they would know that they are a firstborn son, if they will, in your presence, God, that Jesus, you love them. You're for them, God. We're lifting up every woman here, God. We pray, Holy Spirit, you would come right now. And I pray they would sense a tangible clothing, God. We pray for the robes of the firstborn son to rest on him, God. That there's neither Jew nor Greek, free nor slave, male nor female. You are all sons of God in the faith. I pray, Holy Spirit, you'd come. Come and clothe them. Open their minds to the inheritance that they walk in. Open their minds and ears and heart, and, and heart to the authority that they walk in, God. God, I pray for those women that have heard voices, even if it's not tangible, Lord, but just that, that, that subtle, conscious-like voice, God, that just wants to say you have nothing to say and binding voices. We're asking, God, for mouths to be loose this morning. We ask God for that voice to be crushed under your truth this morning, God. God, we pray for that certain woman like we read with Abimelech, God. That you would give us, you would give us, God, eyes to see all the value and the calling, the anointing on, on the certain women in this house, God. That, Lord, that they would, they would step fully into their callings, God. I thank you, God, that there's women that will crush 
crush the heads of Abimelech in this house, God, that they will turn the tides of this, of this nation, God, that they will turn the tides of this community, God. I thank you for women that are fighting, God, for life, God, that will come against abortion, God. I thank you for their anointing, God. God, I lift up the men, Lord. May we, God, may, may our hearts be humbled by your heart for women, God. Oh, may we reflect your heart. May we champion every woman in this house, Lord. Hallelujah, Lord. Hallelujah, Lord. Yeah, we're asking now. Come on, just give it another minute. Holy Spirit, come. Come and bring freedom to hearts, Lord. Come and touch, touch, Lord. Touch, Lord, touch, Lord. We're asking God that there would be an impartation, Lord. We pray for anointings like Esther to be released in Jesus' name, God. We pray for Deborah anointings, God. Anna anointings, Lord. Be released, Lord. And we pray for this to be a house full of women that are bold and fierce. We pray for the mothers, the mothers of Mastic Beach, the mothers of of Long Island, God, I thank you, God, that they can, they can walk in anointing and maintain their motherhood, God. So I pray against women that feel like they've had to silence their womanhood to lead, God. I pray, God, that they would walk in confidence in how you've made them, God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Bless them, Lord. Bless them, Lord. Bless them, Lord. God, we're asking that what you've released here today would be sealed in hearts, Lord. Thank you that your truth runs deep I pray, I pray, God, over this week that things that were shared, God, that Spirit of God, that you would, you would deepen and bring the remembrance, God. I thank you that there was a water hose that was released, but you're going to now start to personalize and deepen it, and you're going to lead women to walk in their callings, Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, Lord. Yeah. God, I, uh, we just repent, Lord, from the men, Lord, if there's, if there's been distorted views, God, and just carrying things that are not in your heart, Lord. God, help us to, to join in with Paul. I pray, God, that this, this community would truly be marked as a, as a community in the Spirit and that we would see all striving for power and authority and jostling for positions to be crushed. And I pray, God, that we could even celebrate the exalting of another, Lord. We could celebrate the giftings in another, God. We ask that you would do this in Jesus' name we pray. We're so happy you could join us on the Home Church Podcast. We pray this week's message encourages you to behold the Lord Jesus and bring his kingdom wherever you go. You can visit us online at myhomechurch.org, subscribe to our YouTube channel, or follow us on social media. If you would like to give to this ministry, text the amount to 84321. Bless you.